we looked at it with, well, why aren't people riding? Like, what are the barriers to entry to riding a motorcycle? And then we made a vehicle that is a bicycle. That same vehicle without changing any components is also a moped. And that same vehicle without changing any components is also a motorcycle. And we do it through uh, software, right? We're, we're able to uh, physically manipulate the actual performance, the power output of the vehicle to where it meets three different criteria uh, defined by FMVSS and DOT. So we're making one vehicle that can be both a bicycle, a moped, or a motorcycle. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today we are talking about a very fun assortment of things from manufacturing to motorcycles to electric vehicles and energy distribution all here in Cleveland, Ohio. I had the pleasure of speaking with Scott Colosimo, who is the founder of Cleveland Cycle Works, a global motorcycle lifestyle brand, which he founded back in 2009 here in Cleveland. Scott is also more recently, though, the founder of Land Energy, a hat tip to the same land of this podcast namesake. Land Energy focuses on distributed power and e-mobility and is obviously based here in Cleveland as well. Land paints a fascinating vision for the future of motorcycles, for mobility, and for connectivity. I really loved hearing about Scott's transition from a focus on heritage and tradition to one of innovation and thoughtful applications of technology with really a firm commitment to design tying it all together. I believe this conversation is actually greatly complemented with a visual counterpart, so definitely would recommend browsing the interwebs on your search engine of choice and looking up Land Energy Emoto and Cleveland Cycle Works motorcycles to visually understand what Scott means when he talks about his commitment to design. As a motorcyclist, it is hard for me to not be a huge fan of Scott's work to push this space into the future with the focus, keeping the manufacturing here in Cleveland, sourcing it from the U.S., reducing the supply chain, all while implementing new manufacturing techniques, spanning hardware, software, and technology. I hope you all enjoy my conversation with Scott Colosimo. So I have been very much looking forward to, to this conversation. Uh, I know we're, we're going to be covering a lot here, uh, multiple companies here in Cleveland, but I'd love to start just setting the stage with a brief overview of, of how you would describe Cleveland Cycle Works and how you would describe Land Energy and really start with that context setting and, and we'll, we'll build from there. Sure. So to talk about Cleveland Cycle Works, I have to talk a little bit about my history and this sort of like uh, wide-eyed kid going into the auto industry. Yeah, I almost feel like in school, you're being told that you can do anything you want, right? Then you get put into this gigantic system that is the automotive industry, and your ideas generally aren't that respected, right? Because you're just some stupid kid, and you know, you're talking billion-dollar decisions. So you quickly find out either you're a lifer and you just deal with the drudgery of you know, riding that uh, iceberg or, or you get sick and you leave. And, you know, Cleveland Cycle Works was very much my like middle finger to the car industry. <laughs> well, because I, I got into it wanting to do everything, right? Um, yeah. Wanting to affect real change. And it's like, 
well, just design gas trucks or gas cars or design this handle or it was so, I don't know, it was a, it was a pretty big wake up call. So Cleveland Cycle Works was like me kind of saying, F it, I'm, I'm going to do this despite how you're supposed to do things. And like any company, right, it was a series of discoveries. So I started it really in the basement of Tektronic Industries, which owns uh, Dirt Devil and Hoover. And I used their entire shop and I was building motorcycles kind of, I think it was like 5 p.m. till 2 a.m. every morning, right? Uh, I was writing the business model and, and doing all that. And luckily enough, I got fired uh, about a year into that, into, into that, uh, that job, right? We, we had the, you know, our great recession, right? 2008, uh, things really took a turn for the worse here. So I call it fired other people and say laid off. So I think they laid off like 40% of their workforce. You know, they brought really, really smart people into Cleveland. Uh, that's what big corporations do, right? They concentrate a lot of smart people in one place. So all of a sudden we found uh, there's about 40 really smart people that all got laid off at the same time. So we all started a, a group licking our wounds, but you know, you, you, a lot of good people, you can't, no one stays down for long, right? So those that quickly found other jobs, quickly found other jobs. And then all of us that were like, all right, we're sick of getting screwed over by big corporations. We're like, we're going to do our own thing. So like, literally, I remember I cobbled together this working prototype, wrote it to one of our working drinking sessions that was at a bar in downtown Cleveland on a Thursday night strategically mm-hmm. positioned everyone outside and I rode the bike and parked it next to, you know, $30,000, $40,000 bikes. And everyone was staring at this little like $3,000 bike that I built. And then I handed the business plan to everyone. I said, I'm doing this shit. Uh, join me or don't. Of course, everyone's like, yeah, whatever. Uh, proceeded to get drunk. Uh, but then uh, the next morning, a few people called me and said, hey, we've been thinking about this. There's a story there, right? Or at least there's a seed of an idea. And that was it. That's how it started. So it was like literally a few people believing in a really crazy idea, uh, putting a little bit of planning behind it and, you know, leading with design. That's really where Cleveland started. There's a a really, really long story there, but basically I tried for many months to start it here in the U S you know, at that time I was in my early twenties and every factory I went to, and I said, I'm starting a motorcycle manufacturer. They looked at me like, and a few of them said, well, where's your dad? Um, where's Scott Colosimo? And I'm like, I'm him. And they're like, you know, get out of here. Like, who the hell are you? And after about six months of that, I was like, all right, I, I can't keep doing this, right? Like at that time, like now keep in mind, we have to put this into context. That was like the height of offshoring, right? That was every major U.S. manufacturer was shipping it to China. So at TTI, I made a ton of contacts and those who live this will, will truly understand what I, under, what I mean when I say those are the MSN days where you literally had a team of R&D people in the U.S. and then you had your Chinese team. And um, at TTI, it's like, all right, before we left for the night, we got on MSN. We told them everything we needed to do. Sometimes we get on 2, 3 in the morning with China. All right, they're doing it. They're working all night. We come in the morning, right? Our MSN's full of messages and you keep working back and forth. So you know, I already had that sort of infrastructure set up. And then I had all these, these Chinese folks I made contacts with saying, Hey, fly to China, come to China, start your company in China. Hmm. And I literally flew to China and I don't think I left for two years after that. And you know, the, the Chinese at that time were very entrepreneurial, very hungry. Uh, I call it an idea vacuum, but they had this incredible uh, manufacturing might. And every factory I walked into, 
they were saying, how do we partner? How do we do this? How do we get this to market? It was a totally different uh, experience. And I was sitting across the table from, you know, 24-year-old multimillionaires running companies making millions of products a year. So it was a different dynamic. And I totally embraced that. I said, okay, this is a place where I can, I can grow my business. You know, but that was a different time. Uh, it was a different focus. But that's, that's how it all started, right? It was, and, and that was back in 2009? Yeah, so 2008 and then 2009 is when we really put a little bit of money behind it and tried to scale it. And then, you know, the Cleveland CycleWorks story is very much one of kind of American ingenuity and Chinese money, you know, being able to, to do this. Now, look, it's, there's a lot, of, a lot of really bad shit that happened over 12 years. I mean, all of our intellectual property was stolen. Everything that people say, don't go to China because this will happen, it happened to us. You know, impossible to get money out of China. Like we could literally ship, we could send a wire transfer to the wrong factory, wrong bank account, it would still get to them, right? But anytime we needed to get money out, it was like a, a three to four week process. So, you know, it's very much a closed system. All the benefits are for the Chinese people, for the Chinese manufacturer, and all the crumbs are for any other partners. And this is a story repeated thousands and thousands and thousands of times. And, um, you know, we had some success. It afforded me a, a nice kind of lifestyle business, but having all of our intellectual property stolen over and over and over again really starts to wear on you after a while. Yeah, I, I, can, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, look at what we did. We were able to build a global lifestyle brand, right? A, a global manufacturing company, essentially with other people's capital, right? So there's a push pull there, right? They invest, invested in the company without having a, you know, equity stake, but they took that equity when they took our IP. So it's a give and take there, right? Right, right. Kind of want to take one step back before before we move forward. As as someone who who also rides a motorcycle, something I've come to learn is that everyone who rides there's like a, a catalyst, some inspiration that inspired your your interest in motorcycles. And I'd love to hear just a little bit about, you know, what specifically drew you to, to this world of, of motorcycles and the business of it, and more generally, the, the automotive space. Sure. So, you know, we all have that crazy uncle, or at least I hope everyone has a crazy <laughs> uncle or a crazy aunt or, you know, that bad influence in your life. And, you know, I will say, I think there is something about vehicles that is literally, it's in your DNA, it's in your blood. And I, I firmly believe that because from two years old, I was on a pedal bike. You know, my aunt bought me a little, still remember it, fuzzy pink seat, uh, red pedal bike. And at two years old, I was riding without training wheels, ripping down the street. I just always wanted to be going faster <laughs> and taking chances. And there was always, there was something about being on two wheels and it, it didn't have to have a motor, right? So it started with a bicycle and my parents were very strict, so um, and they were very clear I was not allowed to have a motorcycle until I was out of their financial control. So that was always <laughs> the, the lever, right? So I never had motorcycles until I was in college, but I was always borrowing friends' mopeds, uh, you know, my uncle's motorcycles. And you know, my uncle was that Harley guy, right? He was the dude that would always show up at the family functions on, on bikes. And it was just so cool. There was something about it. So, you know, my love for bicycles translated to BMX bikes, and I spent my entire childhood building jumps and living in the woods and riding BMX bikes and 
you know, traveling around, you know, Chang World was a big influence on that and amazing builders like Nate Wessel and, you know, people building amazing things for you to ride BMX bikes on. And then once I did get some money and graduated college, I had the ability to buy motorcycles and I got deep, deep, deep into racing. Um, so like my baptism into motorcycles was late in life, right? It was after college because my mom saw my uncle and my dad crashing motorcycles when they were growing up. So I was forbidden, right? That was the, the thing. So I actually right. think that the forbidden fruit makes it more attractive as well, right? So, you know, there's always that you can't do it Well, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and like I said, like, it, it's really hard for me to explain to people who are just like, ah, it's just a car or ah, it's just a bike or, you know, like, I don't understand people who buy Honda Accords. Like what, <laughs> you know, like Toyota Camry, <laughs> like not even an option, right? Like transportation to me is transformative, right? It's, uh, it's like an extension of your body and even cars, right? I've always been obsessed with, with cars as well. So it, it's hard to explain. So, it, you know, I, you sent me some questions that, Hey, I'm going to ask this. And I'm like, I don't even know how to explain this obsession. I, I'm trying to tease it out, but it's, it's difficult. Yeah, no, this is, it's a good place to start. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's a complete obsession, right? Like some people get addicted to drugs. Some people get addicted to other things. There's just something about putting your body in or on a vehicle. I mean, even addiction with snowboarding, right? It's uh, mm. things that move. It doesn't necessarily have to be a bike or a car. I think it's the, the propulsion, the, the speed is, is something that, it's there. Yeah, no, it, it resonates. But what I think maybe is not the case for most people is that it's hard to marry your passion, your obsession with being and existing in the world and finding a way to, to have a, and earn a, a living through it. But you have, you have found a way to, to do this. It wasn't always that way. You know, there were many, many years where I spent my entire paycheck on my car, right? Or I would lose girlfriends because I would be customizing my car in a body shop all night, right? Like I position, like, so I worked in a body shop growing up, so I had access to tools so I could customize my car, <laughs> like, right? And even this move to TTI, when I saw their shop, I was like, all right, well, I can work here designing vacuums and hand tools and stuff, but I'm like, I can use the shop to build motorcycles. Like that was, that was a main impetus. And I asked them straight up, I'm like, can I use this to do my own stuff after hours? And they were like, oh yeah, like, absolutely. So I've always kind of positioned myself in areas that I had access. And, you know, the, the other thing is with BMX, we literally took woods that were trees and nothing in them. And I will say there's something about building trails in the woods. Like people think it's just kids building mounds, but it's not. Like we built trails and they flooded. So we had to irrigate them, right? So we had to, we buried um, drainage tiles and we created ponds. Um, and then those ponds got mosquitoes and we had to figure out ways to keep the mosquitoes away. And then, you know, you get bored with a line and you build transfers and, you know, and there was no one who was going to do it unless you put in the time and the effort to do it. Right. So that sort of idea of I'm literally going to spend two weeks building a, a jump for my own enjoyment. You know, that builds this sort of steadfastness, right? Like it, it doesn't happen overnight. It's very difficult. And the payoff is a very, very long payoff. So I think, you know, that sort of, BMX culture, that community. And then, you know, out of that sprung a lot of businesses, right? A lot of my friends started bike companies. They started parts companies. They became videographers, photographers, professional BMX riders. You know, Nate Wessel linked up with the uh, Nitro Circus guys in Woodward, and he's 
turned an entire career riding into a career building skate parks all around the world. So there was a lot of kind of entrepreneurship that came out of that. And it was just people trying to live that high, right? Follow that, their passion. And I saw that from probably seventh grade on that, you know, these were young guys following their passions. It, I mean, Chango World was a couple 20-year-olds starting a skate park, right? Like insane. So, you know, Cleveland's like that, right? It's, uh, it's not a place that you're, you floss without substance right here. If you're, if you're a baller, it's a baller because you, you made it, you built it. It's different. Yeah, that's very cool. Before we kind of work our way towards land energy and, and talk about the work you're doing there, I'd love to just get you know an understanding of where, where CycleWorks is today. And one thing I just wanted to go a little bit deeper on was your perspective on, on leading with design as, as kind of the, the founding for it. Sure. Yeah, so Cleveland CycleWorks, to, just to kind of drive home what that brand and company is, I saw the entire industry making cheap, really crappy bikes as a means to step people up into $15,000 and $20,000 bikes, right? They treated you like, oh, poor you, you working class slob. Here's a pretty shitty bike, but oh, we'll get you into that $15,000 bike. You know, we'll build your credit. It was like a, it, it was a really poor business model to me, right? And it's so salient at this point that I saw a company I really admired called Sucker Punch Sally's back in the day, offering what they called the working man's bobber, which I think was like fifteen to $17,000 for a pile of parts that you had to build mm. yourself. And I was like, what working man is that for? Because that is not a single working man I know, right? And that was it. And I said, look, I want to build really cool, affordable bikes. So we did bikes that were $2,700 to $6,000 um, that you can be proud to ride. And if you ride a Cleveland CycleWorks bike anywhere and you stop at a gas station, you cannot get out of that gas station without someone saying, that's cool, wanting to know more, or asking you where you got it. And that's the power of design, right? It wasn't this, oh, poor you, you can only afford a, a cheap bike. It was like, no, own it. Like affordability is cool, right? I'm living within my means and I have this amazing platform to do that. And customization was always in the back of our minds as well. And, you know, this idea of, um, you know, sticking $10,000 of chrome on a $30,000 bike was really foreign to me. So I said, okay, well, you can completely kit one of our bikes out for a thousand bucks. I'm talking a really slick custom. So for, you know, under five grand, you can have a pretty awesome custom bike. It, and that was it. And it was all led by design, right? The choices we made, we, we went with the 250 CC to start with, uh, and then a 400 CC. And um, we have some bigger motors, but it was all just squarely looking at where I saw the consumer, where I saw a need and just wanting to make cool products for what I think are pretty cool people. And, and that's really all it was. So now we talk about the transition to land energy and, um, you know, my, my life, my career has been very much of like trying to plan it out, but you can never really, like, I can't plan two days from now, let alone years in the future. <laughs> so we started doing, uh, the Falcon, which was our first e-bike under Cleveland cycle works. We knew nothing about electric, right? We started building custom bikes and just pl literally playing around with electric on our spare time. And like designers often do, and this is what I could never do in the auto industry, we dug deeper and we kept digging and then digging and we continue mm -hmm. to dig. And what we found is that the deeper we got into electric, 
the less value we saw in gas. And at least from an innovation standpoint, which I'm always pushing for innovation, I came to an absolute end with, with gasoline as an innovator. Once I understood the benefits from a manufacturing standpoint, from a, a user standpoint, and from a, a more global standpoint, I, lit, I could not bring myself to design any more gas bikes. Now, I have to separate myself as a business person from myself as an enthusiast, right? I still love a V8. I love electric propulsion. Give me a jet engine. I'll love that too, right? <laughs> T- to me, it, it wasn't so much about the means as an enthusiast. It was about how this transition happened as, a, as an innovator. And Cleveland Psychworks, after that, um, after I transitioned and then my guys slowly, slowly transitioned, um, you know, our engineers and designers and everyone here, we were looking at each other like, what the hell are we doing? So there's still a market for gas. I mean, there's going to be, you know, probably a 10 to, to 12, maybe 13 year transition. There's still markets where gas bikes continue to grow, right? Southeast Asia is seeing a massive mm. increase in the middle class. So, you know, the 400cc bike is a big growth market because everyone's stepping up from the 250. Um, so Cleveland Psychworks still has legs. It can still grow. It can still expand. I'm sure anyone buying it's probably going to eventually do electric. But, you know, we have seven gas vehicles that exist, a ton of IP, millions of dollars in tooling. So I'm in the process of selling it. You know, as a CEO, I can't head a company that I don't want to continue to scale, right? So there's a story there. There's uh, a future there. There's, there's currently several buyers for the company. You know, that transition proje- uh, process is slow. We just signed up a new distributor today in Malaysia. So there, there's still growth um, and, and there's still people that believe and in, in are invested in the Cleveland Psychworks brand. It's just as an innovator, I can't do that and then also push the electric forward. So I, I had to make a, a break and it was hard because we went from, you know, the Cleveland Psychoworks revenue was funding all of the early land development. But at some point, I, I just had to, make a, had to make that mental shift and say, okay, that was the past. The future is the future. And, you know, the deeper we went into it, and that's where, you know, like Harley Davidson, they're trying to hold on to this heritage. And when we do market research, the tech forward people that are interested in what we're doing, they don't care about heritage. So Cleveland Psychoworks was more of an encumbrance than, you know, we originally thought, okay, well, people are going to see what we did with Cleveland and that's going to help really propel the electric bikes forward. It had the opposite effect. A lot of people were really turned off by that, um, that heritage and that kind of old school motorcycle branding. Yeah. Yeah. So, So we just had to make a complete break and say, okay, where are we going with it? And, you know, Cleveland Cycle Works, we just shortened that to land. And it, it's very much a hat tip to the city that we love. You know, yeah. I think. Namesake of this podcast. The land, that's right. So <laughs> it was a process, right? You can't plan a lot of this stuff out. And the, the more we learn and, and the deeper we get, the more relevant it is becoming. So what did you unearth as you kept digging? Like, what is the land? So land is a company, our reason for being is what we call power continuity. Power continuity or distributed power is a very new concept. As any business person, if you really, so what I'll I'll say is my transition from kind of designer 
to entrepreneur, uh, it's taken a 10 to 12 years to really stop thinking of myself as purely a designer and give up mm-hmm. that and, and culture design and other people, right? Designers, people may or may not know, it's like the most competitive field in, in the world. Like less people get hired as car designers than get into the NFL. Um, this is a fact, right? So it's very, very competitive and it's a lot of type A's and it's a lot of, we're, we're a damaged set. So <laughs> <laughs> in a good way, right? It's kind of a lot of compulsive uh, nature there. But I transitioned that love of design and love of, of creating and innovating to bringing that love to innovating from a business model standpoint. So we got to tease out how it, how it started, right? So it started making cool little e-bikes. Then we understand, well, these have electric batteries. Why is everyone ignoring the fact that these can literally power everything? And then looking at the whole industry and say, well, the industry is really trying to do motorcycle 2.0, right? So if, if you're running a gas business and you own, let's say, 50% of the motorcycle market, you don't want change. You, change is a, a direct threat to your entire business model. So you know, the entire industry right now is trying to convince consumers that it still makes sense to buy gas while then trying to convince them to buy electric, which is very difficult. So they're doing electric bikes that look like gas bikes, you know, a la the, the live wire, right? Let's make a, a really big, heavy gas bike and let's just make this electric. And then let's put some buzzwords around it and, you know, try to make it vibrate. And it, it, it's like the antithesis of what we don't want to do. It's this hold on to the heritage while try to embrace the future. It's, it's very difficult. So we got into it and we said, okay, there's this power platform that's different. It doesn't have to be static. It doesn't have to be structural. It's the thing that's changing the most, right? It's uh, battery power, mm-hmm. battery investment, and what we're finding with uh, different cell technologies is scaling so quickly. So we latched onto that, and we didn't know where it was going to go. We said, there's something there we don't quite know. And we put that to the side, and, and then we started developing what we call the Emoto. And then we started looking at the bike and say, okay, well, where's the low-hanging fruit? What's missing? Where electrification to us makes more sense, small displacement gas vehicles, uh, because all the ethanol mandates and everything, that, all the stuff that's going into gas right now, it mm-hmm. makes them very difficult to, to use, especially in Cleveland where you have to storm for a few months. You know, ethanol evaporates, and then you got a clogged injector, clogged carbs. So on the small end, let's call it um, 50 cc to like 400 cc, we see real benefit to electrification. On the higher end, trying to compete with, you know, 190 horsepower gas motorcycle, that's where electric doesn't do so well. Um, and then anything above like 65 miles per hour, it's just killing the battery, right? It's, it's pulling so much energy out of the battery that we said there's, there's no benefit there. So first and foremost, we looked at, okay, there's something with the, the power. Mm-hmm. We got to hit the right product, right? We want to offer more usability, more benefit to the consumer. So let's stick with this like 50 to 400 cc range. And that was it. That was the seed. Where it transitioned into was these power packs can be swapped out. You can use them as battery backup for your house. If you go camping, you can use the second pack to uh, power anything. Your computer, you know, we put an inverter in it. Uh, It's got USB-A, USB-C connections. So power your cell phones. You can plug in LED lights. And then you add solar to that. And that's kind of where the light bulb went on. And once we started charging these packs off the grid, that's where we said, wow, there is really, we're right at the cusp of something big here. Batteries to most consumers are boring, right? They're 
static. There's not a lot there. So we've kind of landed in this really good place where the Emoto is literally a power distribution device. Uh, we take this very serious. We put a lot of time and effort into developing this chassis, uh, the platform, the vehicle, um, our algorithms, and all the, the data and everything behind that, um, our IoT mm-hmm. package. But then we started looking at, well, where else can this go? And then all of a sudden, we had RV companies contacting us and saying, well, could this be used, charge it off of solar, and could we use your 5-kilowatt-hour packs as, as our battery system for the RV? And we said, well, yeah, why not? You could. And we started looking at that and say, well, a lot of RV people like to put bikes on the back of, of your RV. Um, I'm one of them. I, I'm an active RVer and camper. Mm-hmm. And we started saying, well, you know, more and more RVs are coming with solar panels on the roof. So you can power your RV off the grid now, right? Charge it with a generator if you need to. And you can keep the RV parked. And now you have a, a vehicle that you can run around the campground. You can go off-roading. You can run to the store. And you can simply swap the packs out. And you always have a charge pack to go. Then we dug deeper. And we started getting contacted by companies that are doing fleet vehicles. And they said, well, can we keep the fleet running virtually 24-7 and just swap out the packs. And we said, well, absolutely, That's a, there's an option there. And then we dug deeper and said, we had people contacting us saying, hey, could we just buy the power platform and could we use it for other things? Which, you know, we're seeing there's, there's other companies doing batteries. And we said, well, that's not too big of a stretch. Um, sure, you could do that. And then we designed the whole vehicle ecosystem around what we call these core packs. So these packs fit into all of our vehicles, right? And, and I think that's... You know, this idea of this ecosystem or this complete kind of breaking free the power from the vehicle, being able to remove it, letting it live with you, right? You can leave the bike on the street and pull the power up to your apartment, plug it in. They plug into any standard outlet. And and there was something there. So from the consumer, and there's two different paths that we're going right now. There's the consumer facing, and then there's kind of the investor or our internal vision. And those two never quite, especially in startups, they never live together, right? Because as we're talking vision, we're talking big ideas. We're talking about who we want to be or where we're going in two, three, five years. So we have to make sure that we get that consumer voice right. We understand where we're at now versus where we're going. Um, so where we are now, we're kind of bikes and batteries, right? That's, the, that's what we're doing. Bikes and batteries. The batteries yep. power the bike and they also power some of your, um, your devices. Where we're going, though, is much, much bigger than that. And we keep getting asked by investors like, hey, do you see a day where you might not do bikes? And that, that might be reality. But right now, we're really, really focused on the bikes and the batteries. Yeah, and I'll just add as like commentary here. I came across one of your bikes here in the wild recently here in Cleveland, and it is it's like, it's visually striking aesthetically. Like it does not look like anything that you have seen it, it like out there before in terms of just the lines, the the cleanliness of it. And it, it, it does inspire, like you were mentioning with, with cycle works, but it inspires a conversation to go like, Hey, like, what is this thing? And where, where do you get it? And, and what, what's, what's the story behind it? Well, and that's usually what happens that usually it, exactly what you said is the what we hear. What is this thing? That is usually how it starts. And this conversation happens everywhere we go. And, you know, I forget that part of it. Design is so baked into everything we do that 
we often forget how unique it is. I think we need to talk about what design is to us because a lot of people think design is just what it looks like. And that is a big part of it, right? I've always lived by this motto of it's easier to sell something that you don't have to sell, right? If the product is visually striking, if it's made with quality, if you can see a certain craftsmanship, and if it visually communicates a certain emotion, it, it's just easy to, to sell a product like that because you're not trying to sell somebody. You're just putting it out there and saying, you either like it or you don't, right? It, it's simple. So the design has been something uh, visually that we have been very, very focused on. And, you know, it's a fine balance because if you make it too much of a spaceship, there's a massive acceptance curve, right? You're, you don't want to be on that bleeding edge. Um, you know, unless you have hundreds of millions of dollars, which we don't. So it's this, it, it has to inspire confidence, right? Um, it has to be intriguing. It's often a little abrasive to some people, but it, it has to elicit some emotion. And, and I think that's what our, our first vehicle does. And we have a few other vehicles in the works that uh, we believe will do that as well. So at the core of visually striking is important, but design to us is very simple. Does it offer something better than something that exists. We ask ourselves that every day is, is it doing something better? Does it offer the consumer something in addition to, and if it doesn't, it's a product we don't release or it's a feature that we don't add on. And, you know, tech for tech's sake, or this idea of releasing tech onto the market with no discernible user benefit, it's something that a lot of companies get trapped into, right? Like I have a GE washing machine that is, it's a connected, it's an IOT device and is absolutely worthless. Like it, <laughs> all it basically does is text me when the wash is done. It doesn't offer me any benefit. It's tech for tech's sake. Like, okay, if I could put the dryer on and keep it from wrinkling, now that would be a benefit, right? It doesn't do that. <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're very clear about this. Like if it doesn't offer a benefit, don't just don't do it. And it's a very, I would say, honest way of, of looking at a product. And our, our product is not the flashiest. It is not the most tech laden product in the world. You know, the, the thing I keep telling my guys is there are other companies that have amazing tech packages, but the product is garbage. Um, and we've written them and we've used them. And it seems like 90% of the focus is on the app, which by the way, once an app's out, you can update it, right? If you get the hardware wrong, there, there's no turning back if you screw the hardware up. So we're very focused on that whole get the hardware right. You, you've got to get that right at the very beginning. You have to test it. You have to make sure that it's solid and it's exactly what it needs to be. The software updates, we can send. We can over-the-air update them. So where is our focus? Well, the focus is, is hardware, batteries, right? It's, it's doing what Cleveland does. It's building stuff. And then the, the tech is, is building as we're, we're learning more and more. Yeah, there's a few threads I, I want to pull on there. I guess the first is kind of referring back to something you had mentioned in your own transition to innovation in design, to innovation in the business itself. When you think about innovation in, in manufacturing and the work you're doing here, I'd love to just understand how you're thinking about, maybe even relative to what you had done prior with CycleWorks, what does that look like in terms of supply chain, manufacturing, you know, implementing new techniques, geographically, how you're thinking about that, that whole process. Sure. I, I think that's important to, to talk about as well. 
what I wanted to do with Cleveland Psychoworks was build an American manufactured product. I would have fallen on my sword if I would have followed that path in 2009. There was absolutely no interest in what we were doing back then. And what do you need to do as you're growing? Um, you know, what, what we're called is an OEM. So we're an original equipment manufacturer, right? We're a vehicle manufacturer. We cannot do it on our own. We need suppliers to build our company. Now we're vertically integrating a ton and that's not meaning that you don't, but you work with, for example, we've never made a brake caliper. There are companies that just make brake calipers. There are thousands of them in China. There's a bunch in Italy. Uh, there's a few in the U.S. When we were starting off, there were no brake caliper manufacturers in the U.S. who would even talk to us. We had meetings with the few motor manufacturers here. They, wouldn't, they didn't care about what we were doing, right? They had their own thing. So not having any support from the supplier base made it very difficult to try to do that here. What we found in 2020, though, is this real sense of, holy shit, we literally shipped everything to China and we cannot make anything here and we can't get anything. You know what? COVID completely broke this fallacy of the global supply chain. And, you know, for, for 12 years, I could order parts from our supplier and I could spin up my factories and we had an endless supply of raw materials. 10 to 15 days, we can make parts and build bikes and literally have bikes shipped within 45 days. 45 days was a disaster. 15 to 30 days was average for us. So think about that. We get a container order. We're just in timing, small volume, you know, 50 to 150 bikes in 15 to 20 days. Like that was, that was common. We did that for 12 years. COVID hits, you can't get raw materials. You can't get anything shipped. You know, I can't forever shipping containers were you know, three grand to 3,200 average to ship them across the world. You know, now we're seeing like $12,000 shipping containers. So the, the supply chain was broken. So we looked at this and we said, holy shit, now's our time. <laughs> it's like, now is our time to, to do what we wanted to do. And then, you know, all these advocacy networks in Ohio started to talk exactly like we needed them to talk, Right. Supply chains broke. We need to bring back manufacturing. And actually, the biggest impetus is this transition from gas to electric. I'm not going to name our supplier, but we went to one supplier that's making a ton of automotive exhaust components. Mm -hmm. And we walked in there and we said, well, what are you going to do when everything transitions to electric? Um, like 80% of your business is making exhausts. And the manufacturer kind of chuckled and he's like, come on, man. He's like, we're making millions of these things. Uh, the weekend went by. Monday morning, he called us. He said, hey, why don't you come by? Let's talk. And <laughs> we said, okay, yeah, great. They had all the, all the tooling, all the machinery we needed to make certain components. And he said, you know, I've been so focused on next week, two weeks from now, getting these parts out. He's like, I never really thought about five years from now. And, and often this is the manufacturing story, right? You're trying to just, you're focused on building things. And he said, you're right. He goes, I went and researched this. And he goes, literally every major manufacturer, automotive manufacturer has announced that they're on a five to 10 year journey to get out of gas completely. And I'm like, yeah, dude. I'm like, where have you been? <laughs> and he's like, I've been making things. He's like, I've been making stuff. He's like, what do you mean? Where have I been? He's like, every day I'm grinding. And, and that's the opportunity we, we needed. And he said, all right. He goes, mm. let's, let's take a chance. He goes, I know you're a startup. I know you have no money. But he's like, I'm, I'm getting into electric. He's like, let's do it. Let's do it together. It's so different from, from 2009 to, to 2020, the amount of support and this realization that if we don't do something in the U.S., 
Um, we're not going to have any jobs. We're not going to be able to get anything. You know, nas- national security is at risk. So that was the impetus. And, and really what it is, is I think it's this coming together of industry. It's the coming together of the government, you know, like it or hate it. If we don't improve our electric infrastructure, um, you know, if we don't build, if we don't start making aluminum and steel and, and all those things here again, if we don't start building things, all is lost. I mean, you know, that's a, that's a big part of it. So, you know, if, if you ask, you know, pull, pull that thread a little bit, we are nothing, right? We're a teeny little startup. And there are massive, massive corporations here in the U.S. that we're partnering with, and some small, some, some big. But there is this collective right now that I've never seen. It's, uh, all right, we're, we're going to get back to what America does, and we're going to start building stuff. Yeah, no, it's, it's very cool to, to hear. The, the other thread I wanted to pull on that, that you talked about was kind of around the competitive landscape here. You know, you mentioned you have, you've kind of tried what is out there, maybe differences in, in the philosophy around what electric vehicles are and should be. But I'd, I'd love to just get your perspective on, on how you think about differentiation and competitors in the market, both on, I think you've touched kind of on the difference between traditional motorcycles and and what you're trying to do, but, but really just kind of the, the overall take on, on the market. Sure. Let me mention one more thing. I, I realized I didn't answer your question about, about why U.S. manufacturing. Um, yeah. So the advanced manufacturing that we're seeing right now, um, especially on small volume, which, you know, until we're producing millions of units, we are a small volume manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're seeing advancements in laser cutting, CNC bending, you know, even laser coping on tubing, robot welding, cobots and robots. We're literally 3D printing continuous strand carbon fiber parts for our drivetrain that we're able to test. So this idea of advanced U.S. manufacturing, we've seen within five years, it become a tool in the design studio and it's starting to transition to real life applications. I remember going to uh, factories in the U.S. 10 years ago, okay, we just got a brand new, you know, fiber laser cutter, million dollars. I have friends in Cleveland that are running their entire operation off of an $80,000 laser cutter. The cost of, of some of these advanced tools that were astronomical just a few years ago have become realistic for small volume manufacturers to bring in-house and, and do and actually run your operation off. So, this idea of advanced U.S. manufacturing is something that we are fully embracing, and it's the only way that we see that we will be competitive globally. Mm. And if you look at it, I mean, I have spent 10 years of my life in factories, right, where you know, there's workers welding with cardboard masks with like a, a hand cut out shield for their eyes, right, or everything from the craziest like dirt floor factories to the most advanced factories that are running you know, complete cycles of, of robots feeding their assembly lines with parts, right? I've, I've, I've seen the gamut of it. Up until recently, these advanced tools that the big manufacturers were, were using, they were so far out of reach. That's where the U.S. is right now. And I, I will say that the kind of workers that we're attracting are interested in manufacturing, but they're not interested in sitting at a stamping machine and, and having a repetitive job all day. They're interested in advanced manufacturing, working on CNC machines, you know, working with cobots, advanced assembly, and, and that's where we see our future. So you know, when people think manufacturing, 
this isn't the way it was in the 1900s, right? Where you're in a dirty factory um, doing a repetitive job all day. Uh, we see our future firmly rooted in advanced manufacturing and Ohio specifically is a huge, huge supporter of that. Okay. So wa- wanted to just cover that real quick. Um, yeah, no, we, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. So, so we answered that. So now the, the other thread you wanted me to pull was around kind of um, the product, right? Yeah. Yeah. So th- this is just thinking like a designer thinks. I've seen a lot of companies that release product without thinking of the market or thinking about where the white space is. And we just saw a product launch today that we were freaked out about. We're like, oh, this big company getting into new product. And we w- watched the product relief and we all laughed. We're like, okay, this is a joke. <laughs> because it's a, they're launching into a space that makes no sense to us. Right? It might make sense to them, but we're looking at saying, where's the white space? Like, where, do you, where can you lead? And, and that's a big focus, right? It's where can we make a real mark and, and really affect a, a change? I'll give you a, a realistic look at that. So between 5 to 7% of the U.S. own and, and ride a motorcycle, right? It's a very, mm-hmm. very small segment. So if I'm a major OEM, I'm going to say, okay, well, you know, let's capture more of the adventure bike segment. You know, let's capture more of the street bike segment, or let's step these people up from our scooters into our, our big bikes, right? That's, that's how, how you're looking at it. We looked at it with, well, why aren't people riding? Like, what are the barriers to entry to riding a motorcycle? And then we made a vehicle that is a bicycle. That same vehicle without changing any components is also a moped. And that same vehicle without changing any components is also a motorcycle. And we do it through uh, software, right? We're, we're able to uh, physically manipulate the actual performance, the power output of the vehicle to where it meets three different criteria uh, defined by FMVSS and DOT. So we're making one vehicle that can be both a bicycle, a moped, or a motorcycle. And then the traditional motorcyclist comes here and says, well, this is stupid. It doesn't have a clutch, right? Or this is goofy. It doesn't have a, a brake uh, where my right foot should be. And we're saying, well, it doesn't have those things because those are barriers to entry, and we didn't see any benefit in that. So why would we put a clutch on the bike and put gears if there's no benefit? And why would we put a, a foot-actuated brake when there's no need or no benefit? This thing rides like a bicycle. And those same people that were motorcycle riders, we give them the bike for a day and we said, spend a day with it. And at the end of the day, you still desire to have a clutch and you still desire to have a brake. Tell us, but, but be, be honest about if you really want it or don't. And luckily, about 99% of the people bringing the bike back say, yeah, I, I don't miss anything it didn't add anything to the experience. So it's just something they're used to, right? Like a real motorcycle has to have a clutch and you have to shift gears. And once you just evaluate the product and say, okay, well that keeps people out, right? That we've all seen videos of, you know, people whiskey throttling it into a barn or into the side of a car or like, you know, (laughs) uncontrollably wheeling a dirt bike. Those are barriers to entry. Scary, right? It's, it's a scary thing. You know, our ride mode one, it's limited to 25 miles per hour. And no matter what you do, one finger on the brake will stop the bike. So if you accidentally whiskey throttle, which you cannot because it's so soft, um, but even so, if, if you're on that throttle and you need to stop, put one finger on either brake and, and the bike's coming to a stop. So, you know, when I say we're trying to 
solve issues and, and give the consumer more. This stems from the very core on how the software interacts with the hardware to like what you mentioned, how the vehicle looks, right? The, the physical presence of the vehicle. How do you think about affordability? You've kind of touched on the ethos, I think, but specifically with this product. Sure. So, you know, the, there's good and bad. We have enough manufacturing experience to be dangerous, but I don't think we've been in the industry too long to say, well, that's the way you do things, which we see every day, right? Well, that's not, a, that's not yeah. the way you do a bike or that's not the way you do it. And it's like, well, why do you do it that way? So we were able to hit our MSRP uh, that we launched at. So the bike starts at $8,000, the district, and it goes up to 15000 Now, a lot of people mistook this $15,000 version as our production version. It, it's a bespoke, hand-built CNC vehicle. We're only building 20 of them and, and they're sold out. So, you know, this is where you got to love the press when they report land making a $15,000 bike. We call it the founder's edition because the people that ordered that bike helped us found the company, right? These were early believers in what we were doing. They put some money down and it helped seed the company to grow it. And they're getting a very special hand numbered, one of a kind. The first 20 bikes are going into the hands of, of those consumers. The more production-focused version, however, is $8,000. If you look at what we are providing for $8,000, it is the most compelling package out there, and I don't think other companies could do what we're doing for the price we're doing at. The kind of power that the vehicle has, 500 uh, foot-pounds of torque, it has a single uh, 1.8 kilowatt-hour battery. You can upgrade that to a dual, which is 3.6 kilowatt-hours. Our single a core plus battery is uh, five kilowatt hours. We're using braided and bonded stainless steel lines. The brakes are Magura, so one of the best brake manufacturers in the world. Uh, we've partnered with Fox. We have the world's first production air shock on the bike. So it's, uh, you know, it, this kind of innovation stems, it goes through the whole vehicle. So the, the product that we're releasing there's nothing like this on the market, and there, there's nothing quite like the quality. And it's almost like a bespoke custom bike um, at, at a bargain price, right? So th there's a tremendous value there. Now, we understand $8,000, it's a lot of money, right? That's a big chance to take on a startup, and we get that. And we do have less expensive vehicles planned, and we do have a less expensive version of this vehicle that we're going to be releasing as well. But, you know, our goal is to produce a good quality, good cost bike. Some of our competitors are producing cheap bikes, right? And what does cheap mean? Cheap means there's no product support. You can't get parts. Every two years, they're making a new vehicle. So they're expecting you to throw it away and, and get a new one. To, to create good quality, good cost, there's a back-end cost to that, right? We have to keep parts in stock. Um, we have to treat the customer right, right? We have to support the product with... Um, maintenance. We have to offer a warranty. We have to be there to answer questions. So we need support staff. So to us value in, in this idea of good quality, good cost, it's, it's holistic. It isn't just about buying this bike and, and that's it because inevitably you're going to buy a, a product and something is going to go wrong eventually. And you are going to need to talk to someone or email someone and, and, and get some support. So you know, that kind of permeates through the in, entire core of what we're doing here. 
And I would not be doing this at this time anywhere else in the U.S. because the whole supply chain and this whole value chain of what we're trying to do, it's really supported here right now. Here in Cleveland? Um, yeah. I mean, not just Cleveland. Like we have Wisconsin. We're working with manufacturing Wisconsin, you know, Mansfield, um, you know, Southern Ohio. Uh, we do have a few suppliers in um, the EU, but in, in general, you know, we're building out the factory here. We're, we're doing about 80% of the parts in Ohio, which is great. Uh, we're building the chassis in-house. We're vertically integrating. So yeah, I would say Ohio, U.S. in, in general. Is it going to be that way forever? No. You know, there's some places that you can't export U.S. product to. You know, there's a lot of protectionism going on outside the U.S. So we can't ship bikes to India. We cannot ship bikes to China. We can't ship bikes to Southeast Asia. But we're looking inward, right? We're, we're starting to grow sales and starting to grow the company. It's really a U.S. focus right now. Before we kind of transition back to Cleveland and, and to the, some of the closing questions I have, I do want to just understand how you are thinking about the transition from this Emoto ecosystem, the, the core, the, the vehicle itself, to from a business to the broader energy vision that you have for, for distribution of energy. I'd love to just understand how you're, you're thinking about that. Sure. So the next 12 months are focused on, like I said, bikes and batteries, right? So the, yeah. the near term is bikes and batteries. The great thing about having swappable batteries is, um, yeah, that's one thing you'll notice on our website. We don't talk about sustainability because, again, it has to be built in, right? It has to be ground up. So sustainability to us isn't buying a product that's going to be thrown away in two years. So the idea with the batteries being swappable is also an idea of keeping the main component, the vehicle, on the road. And let's say you sell this bike in five years, a new consumer owns it. And we've seen tremendous increases in battery technology. You simply swap in new battery tech. That old battery tech comes out and we can use it for battery backups, right? We can, we can still use that technology. And you have a vehicle that was not thrown away. You have a vehicle that can live many lives. So a big part of the scale of the company is having these e-motos on the road. And the more e-motos we put out there, it creates an annuity uh, for us. And it creates some real value for the consumer because we can always be offering them the newest tech. So that is a big part of, of the plan. But outside of, of the vehicle, we see a tremendous opportunity for battery backup in the home. We've had a few investors who were looking at Tesla power walls and the cost to install those is it's significant. And it assumes that you own a house. It assumes that you're going to be in that house for at least eight to 10 years. And there's a lot of infrastructure changes you need to do to, to integrate that. We're offering a way for people to get into energy independence and battery backup at a very low cost and it's mobile. So if you don't own a, a house, you have a battery backup system that goes with you. Uh, the fact that we're focused on these smaller 1.8 kilowatt hour to five kilowatt hour packs means that you can actually charge them off of solar. So let's say, um, and anyone who lives in Cleveland Heights knows the issue with Cleveland Heights, our power goes down once a week, like religiously, we're always out of power. Yeah. You know, these things aren't made to have battery backup in your house for weeks. Um, it's emergency, right? Okay, I need to do some work. I have no power. I could work for a couple hours or a few days. I could plug in a refrigerator, you know, keep my um, refrigerator running or 
I can plug in a router, right? It's, it's a more mobile solution and it's not static. And, and that's kind of the, the main focus. You're going camping for the weekend, throw it in your car, take the bike with you or don't. You, you know, this idea of power continuity became very clear to us because of COVID. You know, I have four kids and sometimes you just can't work with four kids in the house. It's insane. So I would have to go to the park it just, just to be able to think, right? And I could work for 45 minutes and then have to charge my, go back and charge my computer. And I was like, you know what? Actually, Henry chopped, one of our engineers chopped up the first connectivity device that had a inverter and USB chargers. And I was sitting at the park bench and I had our bike. I had our battery on the table. My iPhone was plugged in to the pack and then my computer was plugged in to the AC inverter. And I spent eight hours at the park. And that's when I said, holy shit, this was not possible before. And I didn't have to worry about running back to my house like I had to do for the couple months prior. You know, like 45 minutes of work, it, it just wasn't enough. And then we hired some photographers and we started doing video shoots and we started to do five to six hours of video shoots and we would charge all of the batteries for the cameras off of the bikes. Um, we started doing really high res photos and videos and then we started to pull the packs out and the tethers for the computer, you know, computers were running out of power. We were running those off the bikes as well. We went up camping in Virginia, Bowler Mountain, and I just had a pack sitting next to the fire so I could work, you know, 12 to 2 a.m. when everyone's sleeping. I had to, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you can never really take off. So... <laughs> But, you know, that's my lifestyle, right? I, um, I go out and I enjoy, and then at, at night I have to do a few hours of work. And I didn't have to recharge the battery for the whole week I was there. I was able to charge my computer, my phone, and, and I was able to work at night. So this idea of power continuity, it's the way that we all live our lives here. There's not very many days where we're disconnected. And I, I can't say who it is, but literally tomorrow we have an RV company flying to Cleveland to meet with us about well, what could we do in the RV industry, right? What could we do with these, these swappable power packs and RVs? And then we kind of briefly talked about fleet, right? There's some fleet opportunities there. You know, if you're a Amazon or we, you've, I'm sure even people that aren't in the industry, you've heard of this last mile, right? Well, last mile is also an issue for delivery. So instead yep. of having a gigantic electric box truck that's going into New York City, you could have micro hubs and you have a fleet of e-bicycles with swappable packs that can be running all day if, if need be. So if you look outside the vehicle, there's a lot of opportunity with the outdoor and the RV community. There is a need for overlanders, um, you know, people who are doing rooftop tents in uh, Jeeps and Tacomas to have a separate electrical system from their a start system that starts the car. Uh, we have heard stories of people getting stranded by accidentally draining their car's battery. You know, I'm just going to plug in for a minute, you fall asleep, and then you can't start it, which if you're overlanding is quite dangerous. Most people have a, overlanders are very smart people though, so most of them have some sort of backup. <laughs> but in terms of tent camping, there's, there's some opportunities. We've been contacted by quite a few RV companies that are interested in um, the distributed power like the one thing I, I'm seeing it on the road too, is more and more people are putting e-bikes on the back of their RVs. So this idea of having an integrated system, a scalable system is attractive. There's some opportunities, obviously with the 
defense space. So there's a ton of opportunity on that side. And there's a lot of infrastructure opportunities. So there's, um, you know, people build, building, you know, off the grid systems. We were talking to a specific um, organization that has weather stations that are um, solar and, and run off mm. of batteries. So there's, there's a lot of opportunity out there. We are focused on, again, going back to our focus, bikes and batteries. That's, that's right now. You know, the low-hanging fruit is like what B2B opportunities exist, who is trying to get into the space, and um, who can we partner with to, to expand upon that. And that yep. will probably be the, the next area that we venture into. And there's, there's a lot of opportunity there. And it's exciting because when we started to tease this out and talk to people, at first it was like, well, who the hell needs this? Like, what is, like, what is this? But the more people that use the product or go camping or spend times outdoors or, or try to work outside the office, the more people are coming back to us and saying, okay, well, we, we see the need. We get it. Like, there's, a, there's an opportunity here. And that's exciting. It's, it's exciting when other people start to kind of see and validate what, what we're seeing. It is, and it's an exciting vision. It's it's an exciting product. It's very it's very cool what, what you guys are building over there. We're we're having fun, right? That's kind of what it's all about right now. <laughs> that's that's important too. It's uh, that's yeah. an important part of the process. So I, I want to tie it back to to Cleveland as we wrap up here, which we've touched on quite quite a bit over uh, the conversation. I wanted to get your perspective on startups and on building a company here in Cleveland? Yeah, I think the probably the best asset we have is cheap real estate. I don't know why anybody would put a startup in, in any zip code in California. It makes no sense to me. The real estate, the cost to compete with the Googles and the, the Valley um, is astronomical. And yes, there is an ecosystem there, but from a startup perspective, it's very, very expensive. So um, this idea of bootstrapping, you know, faking it till you make it, it's very, very difficult. And we've seen a lot of companies have pretty quick scale-ups and then, and then fall. There is $2 a square foot space here in Cleveland. Like, that's insane. You know, there's $4 a square foot space and there's $22 a square foot space. Pick, pick where you want to be, right? And then Cleveland's a city of people that build things. And we have a culture of there's not a kind of an uppityness here, right? There's not this sort of fakeness. It's, and I, I find that in places that make things, um, you have to be very, very aware of, <laughs> you're only a few weeks from bankruptcy, right? If you take your eye off the ball, um, you can't take yeah. your eye off the factory, right? You're, you're, you're in it, you're in the thick of it. So I think from, from that standpoint, that kind of grit, right? That idea that actually it's funny. One of our, our seed investors said, um, you know how I hire an engineer, He's like, uh, parents are still together. He said, uh, from somewhere near Northeast Ohio and has lasted a few years at an engineering job anywhere in Ohio. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, that's a pretty, uh, pretty narrow, uh, focus. And he's like, he's like, I know he goes, it's, I've broken the rule many times when he's like, in general, those are the, the, the men and women that stick with me for a very long time. Right. They're not trying to get to California. You know, they at least have some kind of. Uh, value structure, uh, and th they've stuck it out at a manufacturer, which, you know, Northeast Ohio is not always glamorous, right? It's uh, not always a, a glamorous place to be, so it, it's, it's difficult. But startup-wise, I, I think the grid is a big part of it, right? There's, man, there's people here, like my guys have been so freaking lo loyal to me, right? Even 
can't pay them a few months, can't, you know, basically do the things like a, a business needs to do, well, they, they stuck it out, right? We hit a bump in the road and it looks like all is lost. We're going into bankruptcy. They figure it out. We need help from a local manufacturer. They step up. You know, we, we need help from an investor and, and, and he, he reaches into his network and says, hey, call these guys. They'll, they'll know how to fix this. So in terms of a manufacturing startup, amazing, amazing ecosystem, right? A grit, total, total grit, just get it done sort of attitude. Uh, but what we're finding is um, even on the tech side, uh, we have a amazing community here of tech creators, right? Tech startups. And that's something I didn't know until we got into electric that there was such a big community here. And, you know, a lot of it's kind of these integrated medical devices, right? IoT and, and different uh, medical focus, but that transitions, right? And we have a community of coders here, which I didn't know we had. We have a pretty robust tech ecosystem that, that is, uh, it's, it's growing. I mean, that's, it's pretty incredible. And, you know, when, when city, city leaders are trying to talk about Cleveland and change who we are, I always, we don't need to change, like. You know, I witnessed a city in China, Sushi, while I was there. It's south of Shanghai. Go from a literal fishing village to a thriving metropolis. When I started, people were on bicycles. The factory now had to extend the parking lot. Everyone's driving cars. Like the, the middle class grew through manufacturing, right? I, I witnessed it in front of my eyes. The wealth of the city grew through manufacturing. And it wasn't your dumb old dirty manufacturing. It was tech enabled, you know, it was high tech manufacturing. And the wealth of that entire city grew as their manufacturing might grew and the, the tech grew. Like one of the largest e-bike companies in the world started in this teeny little city and they, they're selling over 6 million e-bicycles a year in China. It's a high tech company that grew out of this kind of fishing village, like manufacturing core. And, and I see a realization in, in Cleveland and Ohio, you know, Cuyahoga County that you know, maybe we don't have to compete strictly on a, a tech side. We can do that, but we don't have to be that. So I, I think the startup community, if you're doing tech-enabled hardware, if you're doing anything with batteries, right, um, anything with transportation, it's a great place to be. I just don't think a lot of people know it, at least not yet. Um, but we're going to change that. Now, people here know it, right? We know that. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, I just heard, so Fisker, electric car uh, manufacturer, is going to be making their cars uh, just 45 minutes from here in Lordstown, right? You know, we have Lordstown down there, which don't want to get in the political, uh, what's going on there, but at least it appears that we have a electric car manufacturer in Ohio, you know, Honda's here. So the ecosystem for me, if we look selfishly, like specifically at what we're doing, batteries check, coders check, tech workers check, manufacturing know-how check, automotive parts suppliers check, and a desire from the government to push advanced manufacturing forward, check. So, you know, the land wins, is winning, right? We're, we're starting to win and, and there's an incredible culture. I will say on the philanthropic side, we talked kind of offline about that, but I think our city leaders and our, our philanthropic community need to stop shuffling money between themselves and actually, you got to invest in some failures, right? If it's not me, it's, it's not just about us. It's about building the community here. Not everything's going to be a winner. So I think that realization or that, you know, only investing in a sure thing, that's probably one of the, we're only investing in incremental changes, 
it, that's one thing that that drives us a little crazy. And I'm gonna throw you under the bus here. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe not. I, I'm sure you've talked about this, but <laughs> we were talking about this kind of secret that's not a secret that um, most people trying to start a startup in Cleveland feel that the organizations that are supposed to be helping us are failing a hundred percent at at what what we're trying to do. Um, and that might just be entrepreneurs being too, uh, maybe we're too bullish, but you know, we're going to keep pushing that, that side of things forward, voice our discontent and, and make that side get better because a thriving startup community here is, it's important. It is important. And it requires an appetite for risk and an understanding of, of what that entails. Yeah. And I would say that's probably the biggest thing is that the nonprofit community here and the investment community here, they'll invest in real estate. Great. They will put a lot of money into real estate and you can see the cities thriving because of that, but it's a fairly low risk endeavor, right? When I talk and I, and I, as I listen to your podcast and talk to other startups from the city, a lot of the investment is coming from outside the city. A lot of money is coming in from outside. And I think we all have a desire to, you know, stay within like, there's this kind of, uh, every Clevelander's proud that they're from Cleveland, right? Like no matter where I go, I can beat people in Shanghai, I can meet <laughs> people in Hong Kong and Indonesia, and they're going to tell you right away they're from Cleveland. So there's kind of a pride there. And, you know, we want that local support. I know you guys want it. Other startups want it. It's it's growing, but it could get better. I think we can could always do better, right? Can always do better. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, in the spirit of things that we know <laughs> about Cleveland that other people may not know about. This is the essence of uh, the closing question, which is for hidden gems in Cleveland. Very specifically things that other people may not know about. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. I learned a lot of the hidden gems from your, your past um, podcastees here. <laughs> I'm going to keep mine. And they, they tend to go to, towards food, don't they? We're a, a big food, food and do. beer community here. Um, I'm going to go, I'm going to stick with the moto theme. Um, we have one of the best and biggest mountain bike parks in the world. It happens to be indoors. It is Ray's Mountain Bike Park. And uh, we are lucky to have such an amazing business and institution here in Cleveland. If you've never been to Ray's Indoor Mountain Bike Park, and it is Ray, R-A-Y, I would suggest you get on YouTube right now and, and look up some videos. I got my son in, my daughters, and all into bicycling, but you know it's not great weather for six months out of the year. And it's amazing to have a several hundred thousand square foot factory for fun uh, right in our backyard. So I would encourage everyone to support Rays. It is a very, very unique place. There is nothing else like it in the world, and it is right here in Cleveland, Ohio. That's a that's an excellent one. And uh, I'll, I'll encourage everyone also to, and, and you can provide the, the destination here, Scott, but to, to take a look at the visual of, of, what, of what Scott is building at Land and, um, and even at, at Cleveland Cycle Works. I, I think having the visual counterpart to our auditory commentary here is a nice, is a nice couple of kind of paints the picture of liter- literally of, <laughs> you know, what this stuff looks like. It's, it's cool. It's very cool to see. So very simply, if you just type in land.bike, L-A-N-D dot B-I-K-E, that will take you directly to our website. Um, you can explore the distributed energy and, and whatnot. If you just Google land e-moto, land e-bike, land motorcycle, 
you will get a whole bunch of content from YouTube and Instagram and all that. And yeah, that's about it. It's pretty easy to find us. And we are building our company right here in Cleveland. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on, Scott, and, and sharing your story. It's a very cool one at that. I appreciate you reaching out. I hope I didn't go too in-depth. You know, I'm stuck here all day with a bunch of <laughs> absolute geeks. Uh, we've been geeking out on this for 18 months, and we have not really been talking to too many people. So this is a great outlet for me because we have been sitting here ruminating and thinking and thinking and thinking. So tremendous data dump, and it's a great outlet for me. So I appreciate you uh, allowing me to have that. Absolutely. My pleasure. Excited for everyone to, to take a listen. Awesome. Well, thank you. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on the show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.